listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 105. Today, we finally get to talk about all those protests and strikes you've been hearing about in France. Haven't heard about them? Our guest Jacobin editor Jonah Birch will fill you in. But first, the news. The Verizon strike is over, and the verdict is that it's a pretty big win for the workers. The strike came to an end on May 27th after six and a half weeks and resulted in a contract that will deliver raises of nearly 11% over the course of the contract, preserve workers' pensions and call center jobs in the U.S., and more. CWA District 1 political director Bob Master spoke to Belabored about the details and the factors that contributed to the workers' victory. Give me a rundown on on what do you think the most significant wins in this contract are? Well, the most significant wins are the preservation of job security and good jobs. Um, right. That was, you know, that was the central goal of the strike. I think we won a, a pretty sweeping victory on those issues. I think that the addition of 1,300 call center jobs um, across the footprint, um, because we actually increased the percentage of call center work that's going to be handled handled by unionized workers right. uh, in the Mid-Atlantic and, and in the Northeast yeah. um, was big. Um, you know, we reversed a number of contracting out initiatives uh, among technicians, and so there'll probably be 100 or 200 jobs there. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, protecting the pension, getting a good raise, minimizing, the, you know, the damage on health care. Um, and, of course, getting the first contract at Verizon Wireless. Um, yeah. You know, all of these things are, are very big wins. After quite a long strike against a company that was really hardline the last time around, you know, what's the significance for the labor movement for staying out this long and, and coming back with a pretty good contract? Yeah. So, I mean, look, I, I, I hate to attribute more significance to this than it deserves, you know, in the sense that, you know, every group of workers is in a unique situation, that their industries are different. Uh, their, their, their levels of power are different. However, I don't want to underestimate the importance of it either in the sense that people were willing to make real sacrifices. And by doing so and by executing, uh, I think, a pretty smart strike plan and, and staying on message in, in the media, we were able to inflict real damage on the company and, and protect the interests of members. And so, you know, in an era in which, you know, strikes have become so infrequent, um, you know, this really does demonstrate that, you know, workers can exercise the strike power in effective ways still. Yeah, I, mean, I don't, you know, want to try to relate everything to the presidential election, but it is, we're still in this moment, right, where we're talking about corporate power, we're talking about inequality, we're talking about labor rights again. Um, you know, what signal does this send going forward to, shall we say, politicians who are looking for uh, winning issues? If I had to tick off the five most important factors, um, you know, that led to the victory and strike, you know, uh, the general climate, the so-called zeitgeist, uh, would be a big part of it, right? And this, this we anticipated, though probably not even to the degree that it happened. We knew that public sentiment would be on our side. America is against big corporations right now, um, and that's a good, healthy thing for our society. Yeah. And nobody goes out and says, oh, no, Lowell, Lowell really deserves $18 million a year, right? <laughs> um, uh, that's, just not a, that's just not something you feel on the street. And, and quite the reverse, you know, that all the, you know, the honking horns and, and people not crossing our picket lines, yeah. you know, which is remarkable since there are a lot of people who don't even know what a picket line is anymore, right? Yeah. Um, 
So I said to my boss at one point, you know, remind us never to call a strike again unless it's a week before a competitive New York primary yeah. in which a socialist is running. You know, um, you know, to have Bernie uh, coming to our rallies, coming to our picket lines, denouncing uh, Verizon and Law McAdam in a nationally televised debate, uh, to have Hillary, you know, feel uh, like she had to be at our picket lines, and she was. Bill Clinton came to our picket lines. I mean, that all means a lot to strikers, and it means a lot in terms of the messaging that the company has to grapple with. So I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head that, you know, the issues that, that, that were salient in this strike are issues that, you know, elected officials and aspiring elected officials should pay close attention to. That was Bob Master, political director of CWA District 1. Grassroots activists from Asia Floor Wage Alliance and other labor advocacy groups went to Geneva to present new research and new policy recommendations to the International Labor Organization conference there. Their subject was the global supply chain, and activists are trying to sculpt a new framework for accountability for multinational companies that source everything for Western markets, ranging from garments that are sold at Walmart to the seafood you eat in your shrimp cocktail. So the new report looks at uh, various countries and their labor standards when it comes to the rights of the workers that are producing uh, clothes in factories for big brands like Walmart, H&M, and Gap. And it's drawn from field research and interviews with more than 340 factory workers in Bangladesh, Cambodia, and India. And it details a fiercely under-regulated system of hyper-exploitation in factories that are not directly tied to the brands themselves, but are connected through a series of contractors and subcontractors that are ranged throughout the global south and that are effectively able to help companies like Walmart dilute their legal accountability. So what the Western multinational brands are able to do, essentially, is to join this global race to the bottom and chase ever cheaper uh, labor uh, in order to maximize their profit as they get uh, cheap clothing shipped from uh, places like Bangladesh, where we had the deadly Rana Plaza factory collapse, killing over a thousand people, and shipping it over to U.S. markets, where it uh, appears at the racks under uh, different labels that uh, are sold for very cheap and uh, create huge profits for the companies up top, not so much for the impoverished workers below. Um, the, some, the details are scathing. Uh, in, in India, for instance, researchers found that all 24 Walmart supplier factories they investigated relied on regular workforces, uh, often working on a piece rate, just as the sweatshops of yore did back in the days of the Triangle Factory fire. Um, workers suffer huge health problems, such as respiratory illnesses, reproductive health issues, and even mental health problems like depression and anxiety. And um, at the top of all this, Walmart, Gap, and H&M, they all uh, very clearly lay out their so-called corporate social responsibility policies in their um, sort of ethical sourcing protocols. Um, the researchers show in detail how these uh, corporate social responsibility protocols end up never being enforced, um, never really doing anything to change the material conditions of the workers at the factory level, and in fact help create sort of a corporate whitewashing effort uh, that allows them to use 
uh, management-friendly third-party auditors uh, to essentially rubber stamp the conditions and the reports that these subcontractor factories submit and essentially get away with huge, egregious labor abuses, um, many of which often flout even the domestic labor laws that exist in these countries. So what to do? Well, we know that these companies are doing a terrible job policing their own supply chains, and we know that the local authorities are often too corrupt or just too uh, under-resourced or too inept to really enforce the law. So Asia Floor Wage Alliance are trying to create a framework that would provide um, some assurance of basic labor standards and a living wage across Asia, hence the term Asia Floor Wage, and uh, also to create an accountability mechanism that would allow something like an international court to hold companies accountable. And here's Ananya Bhattacharji of the Asia Four Wage Alliance talking about their vision for this framework. Now, the multinationals are not right now under any jurisdiction. For example, the OECD guidelines, which is another form of international complaint mechanism, allows, uh, say, someone like me in India as a trade unionist to um, lodge a complaint against Walmart in the United States or against H&M in Sweden and ask that government to arbitrate. However, again, that's not a binding procedure. So what we want the ILO to do is to come up with a binding procedure of com- conflict, mediation, and resolution. For example, the ILO has Committee of Experts on Freedom of Association. In these committees, routinely, unions lodge complaints and the ILO mediates between unions and governments and directs them to do what is under the law. In the same manner, we want the ILO to do the same for the global supply chain. What kind of legal consequences would they face for violations? How would it be binding? Yes, so so that's a very good question, and those are exactly the types of questions that we would like to be able to explore in the coming year when we do want the convention to be actually articulated. And so what we have been discussing here is, first of all, proving the need for global supply chain regulation. You know, just to reaffirm again, this discussion has never taken place. The employers have blocked it for years. So this is the first time they are even being told that you need to be regulated. So so first step is to bring this discussion on the table so that the ILO governing body takes stock that it that there is a tripartite meeting going on and there is outrage from at least two of those parties, governments and workers, saying this regulation has to come into being. Second, what would that regulation look like? And people have only kind of imagined it right now. The convention language is not something that is being drafted right now, but you are right. It should have within its ambit penalties or uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, punishment that should go with disobeying of international law. That we have, uh, that we do agree on. What exactly that form will be, that drafting is not what is happening right now. But we do want to get there. Would you say this is analogous to like the Paris 
climate agreement or a free trade deal or some sort of international body uh, treaty like that? Yes, I mean, the thing is that we need to be able to bring the lead firms into a procedure where either we succeed in solving a grievance through conflict resolution or in achieving a, a sentence of some kind. So, you know, there is obviously some kind of a judicial system that has to be thought of. We are not sure what that would be. I mean, if you just ask labor activists, we would say we need something like the International Criminal Court for labor. However, you know, we cannot at this point say exactly what the body will look like, but we are certainly looking for some uh, judicial space where multinationals can be penalized for disobeying the international law. However, we have to make the conditions for it, which is that they ha we need more transparency in the global supply chain, because as you read in the report, they, there's a lot of subcontracting down to home-based workers. And so sometimes the lead firms own supply, they do not like to reveal their supply chain. So the, re uh, the supply chain has to be revealed and we need constant monitoring to see that the international law is being followed. The ILO right now uh, has a bureaucracy that recognizes national unions from different countries. However, the vast majority of the workers today do not belong to the national unions. They either are locally dependent unions or their workers' associations. And so even at this ILC, you will see that aside from so-called uh, accredited unions, there are um, NGOs and other ways in which people are here to represent workers that do not fall within the ambit of NGO, uh, in, the fall of, in the ambit of national unions, which is why we are saying that civil society needs to be more broadened in this because if you want to cover the supply chain, you would need to open up to more types of organizations. That was Ananya Bhattacharjee of Asia Floor Wage Alliance talking about the ILO framework that is coming into being uh, for the global supply chain. And it should be noted that they really emphasize the work and the role of grassroots labor organizations, not just mainstream trade unions, in terms of holding employers accountable and for organizing these workers. Because in the absence of the strong protection of the rule of law and the absence of uh, meaningful regulations and meaningful corporate accountability, workers should, at the very least, have the ability to rise up and protect themselves by taking collective action. Last weekend, I joined a group of farm workers and their supporters for a stop on their march from Long Island to Albany in support of a bill that would give the farm workers organizing rights. Belabored listeners likely know that as farm workers and domestic workers were excluded from the New Deal's labor protections, largely as a legacy of racism. At the time, farm workers were mostly black. These days, they're mostly Latino immigrants, many of them undocumented, and racism still plays a role in keeping them outside of labor law. 
But in New York, we have the chance to change that. The New York Farmworker Fair Labor Practices Act, sponsored by Democrat Working Families Party Senator Adriano Espayat, has been around for a while. Some form of the bill has been around for about 16 years and came within three votes of passing in 2010. But this year, it's gotten an additional boost from a lawsuit filed by the New York Civil Liberties Union on behalf of a farm worker who was fired for meeting with an organizer after hours. NYCLU is arguing that the state's Labor Relations Act, which, like federal law, excludes farm workers, is unconstitutional, and even Andrew Cuomo has said he won't fight it. The workers want Cuomo to actually put his weight behind this bill. The bill would give farm workers an eight-hour day with paid overtime if they work overtime, guarantee them a day of rest, require employers to meet housing standards for their workers, and provide workers' compensation. It would also grant farm workers collective bargaining rights. The 18-day march, which wrapped up with a big rally in Albany on June 1st, took place in the middle of the hottest week of the summer thus far, leaving the marchers walking in 98-degree heat and served to dramatize the nature of the farm work for the allies who don't spend all day working under the summer sun. For the farm workers, of course, being out all day in the heat is nothing new. But if this bill passes, they'll at least be mandated one day out of it per week. While Walmart is known for importing many, many products that are made in China, one of the things that the retail giant has managed to export to China lately has been its terrible labor practices. And in fact, in a strange sort of race to the bottom reversal, uh, the practices that have dogged U.S. workers, namely erratic scheduling, uh, lack of stable hours, and, and hence lack of steady income, this constant precarity that many U.S. workers deal with on a so called flexible schedule, that strategy of corporate management is being exported to Walmart workers in China as part of a labor optimization program, or so it's being sold to some of the workers who are now revolting against it in China. Um, now, you might find it strange, but in China, uh, Walmart has one thing that it distinctly lacks in America, which is unions. Of course, these are largely unions in name only. Back in 2006, through an agreement with the All-China Federation of Trade Unions, Walmart started to allow its stores on the mainland to be unionized under the official government-run union. Now, this union is known for being pretty management-friendly. It's known for actually tamping down labor unrest and absorbing. Um, you know, labor conflicts uh, in a way that tends to favor the corporations and favor local officials rather than actually channeling the interests of workers or advocating for them. That being said, the union election has become the locus of some pretty serious political mobilization. There are now thousands of Walmart workers across China who are joining uh, online networks, trying to build uh, petitions, build uh, insurgent slates for their union elections, which are generally sort of nominal sort of rubber stamping contests, but um, they're trying to make the union elections actually meaningful down there. And so at a few key uh, Walmart outlets, there have been militant labor uprisings, as well as some uh, labor disputes and lawsuits coming out of that due to some retaliation against the worker activists at Walmart. I have a report up at The Nation uh, detailing some of these efforts and what they 
hope to change about Walmart as a workplace in China. And interestingly enough, they have some very interesting critiques of the American system of labor, and they are pretty dead set on keeping those practices out of Walmart stores in China. They reject the flexibility plan. They say it will undermine labor protections. It will undermine um, things like you know uh, wage and hour laws and uh, undermine the stability of the schedules that uh, workers in China rightfully feel is increasingly endangered. And in fact, Walmart wages, despite their promise of bringing you know Western values and Western corporate culture and Western uh, ways of life to uh, the Chinese citizenry, for the workers inside the stores themselves, they have seen their wages not keep up with inflation or even uh, increases in the area minimum wage. So uh, what the workers were telling me is that by winning union elections through uh, grassroots rank-and-file activism, they hope to be able to overturn some of these bad labor policies um, that they see encroaching on their day-to-day work lives and hopefully restoring some semblance of worker rights and uh, being able to strengthen their collective bargaining agreements. Now, it's important to understand that this dynamic, of course, is very much still under the control of a government-run union, but they are forming a rank-and-file movement that calls itself the Independent uh, Walmart Chinese Workers Association. Now, it remains to be seen whether this can be a viable force for any kind of political action in China, but perhaps um, they may be able to achieve some semblance of workplace democracy in the absence of actual democracy in China. And if they can do that under an authoritarian regime, Regime, then that will be a very interesting lesson for us here in our so-called democracy in America, where Walmart still has done everything it can to squelch any semblance of union organizing. Unions in name can do little for workers, as they do in China, uh, but here in the U.S. too, workers without unions may end up doing even less, and hopefully the two sides can learn from each other. And in this episode, we go across the Atlantic and to the barricades with Jonah Birch, a graduate student at New York University who has written about the uprisings in France and what the labor law reforms there mean and what this new Nudibu movement uh, means for France's youth. And here he is talking with us about the dynamics unfolding on the ground in Paris and beyond. Can you tell us about the proposed changes in France's labor law that have precipitated all of these protests? This is the the culmination of really years worth of attempted labor law reform that predates the current government, but that the current government has really pushed forward with. This proposal would make a a whole bunch of changes in the the Code du Travail, the the labor code, which is the sort of encompassing code of, of labor laws in France. It would change the rules on working time and and make it easier for uh, employers to ask workers to work a higher number of hours every week. It would make it easier for employers to lay workers off. It would reduce the amount of compensation that laid off workers would get. You know, it would make a whole bunch of changes. But I, I think in some ways the most fundamental thing, the way it's described in France, is it would reverse the hierarchy of norms in uh, French labor law. And traditionally, that's meant that the, the way that employment was regulated in France, you had sort of at the top, you had labor law, which yeah. set the, the, the sort of framework and the, the broad picture. And then within that, as you, you worked your way down, you had the traditional collective bargaining system, 
which was really centered at the, the sectoral level. So there would be these sector level agreements that employers would sign with, with uh, the unions. And then at the bottom, since the beginning of the 1980s, really, uh, there's been some space for these company level agreements that sort of adjusted the terms of, in a narrow way within that framework of, of the employment relationship. And this would reverse the, the relationship between those. So really the center of employment regulation would now be the company level agreement. And as we know, as, as this has been sort of the pattern all over Europe, this decentralization of collective bargaining. And it's been a recipe for undermining employment standards, for, for austerity, for, for liberalization all over Europe. And it's been really, a, it's been very antithetical to the sort of maintenance of traditional employment standards. So, so this is one of the central things that a lot of the opponents of the law are, uh, are objecting to. Um, and the promises that the, that the government is making, you know, it, they, they're, they're saying this is going to be a way of, of, of trying to improve the employment situation. And I think a lot of people are very, very doubtful about that. Explain Nidivu and sort of the political moment that is arising right now and why we're seeing this sudden explosion or, or seemingly sudden uh, explosion of unrest. Nuit has emerged out of the movement in lots of ways against the, the labor law reform. That sort of set the backdrop to it. There's something bigger going on in a, in a certain way that you're now seeing this explosion of labor protests and uh, in, in particular which in some ways people didn't think was, was possible necessarily anymore in France. You know, in that over the last couple of decades, there have repeatedly been these kind of social explosions uh, in response particularly to efforts to, to, to um, liberalize labor laws, to, to reduce employment standards, to, to weaken the welfare state. After 1995, when there was a big movement uh, centered in the public sector, particularly among train drivers, that succeeded in stopping a, a pension reform, you saw uh, uh, repeatedly these kinds of these kinds of big movements emerge, you know, and at times be be pretty successful in, in stopping some some contentious reforms from being implemented. In 2010, there was a big protest against a another pension reform. This one being pushed by uh, Sarkozy, who was the president at the time, who was very very controversial figure, very conservative, running for president again, actually, next year. But that failed. And after that failure, I think there was a lot of disorientation and, and a lot of um, uncertainty about whether, you know, that was it, whether this, the capacity to produce these kinds of explosive social movements was finished. But clearly, that's not the case. And over the last year, let's say, you've seen the, the buildup of of a lot of anger, certainly, and a, a real feeling that the political elite and the political establishment is not representing what people want. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've seen some very heated protests. Let's say there was a protest at Air France where these two managers had their shirts ripped off last year. And, you know, there was a lot of support for the workers who they tried to charge with crimes. Um, so, so this spring, and, and really it was, it was detonated by the current uh, labor law proposal, you've seen this sort of escalation of protests. And now it's spread into some very key sectors in, um, you know, the French economy and ports, transportation, energy, some public services. These are, these are really important sectors and there's a real potential for, for things to, to keep growing. So in some ways it's a very exciting moment. It's, it's also a very, um, 
you know, frightening moment uh, in other ways, because if the government manages to push through this bill, you know, at least as it is, uh, you know, in general, that it would be a, it would be a serious defeat. From uh, our perspective here in the U.S., we tend to hear about strikes happening a lot in France. Um, is this palpably different, would you say, than, say, the uprising against the last time they tried to push this uh, labor law reform or similar reform? So since Hollande was elected the current president in 2012, they pushed a whole series of bills, and they have, there have, they have not been able to mount a serious opposition to it. Even last year, there was another uh, reform of some of the labor laws uh, known as the, the Loi Macron. Uh, it was named after the finance minister. This one is named after the current labor minister. Um, and there was a lot of opposition to it, so much that as has been true so far with the, the first reading of this bill, to get that bill last year pushed through, the government was forced to re resort to this constitutional uh, maneuver that allowed it to, to bypass a, a parliamentary vote called the 49-3. The um, but on the streets, there was very little opposition. And, um, you know, and so this is something that that definitely is is much bigger than um, than we've seen in the, the uh, you know, in the, the last few years. I mean, it's, think of it as this is a very long running process of, of reform and, and liberalization that's had different elements to it. And at times, there have been movements on the street that have stopped, at least temporarily, some of those reforms from getting implemented. And in the last six years, those movements have sort of dissipated. Um, one thing I, I, I think it's important to note is that there's kind of a mythology about the French labor movement that we have in the, in the U.S. in particular, that they are always on strike, that they have these incredibly powerful uh, unions that really they kind of dictate um, policy and and they have a different kind of industrial relations system where you don't have to be in a union to be rep to be covered by a union contract um, and in which multiple unions can be represented in the same firm. So it's a little bit different and these numbers can be a little misleading. On the other hand, France has a low has lower union density than the United States. So, so a smaller percentage of its workforce is actually a member of, of the union and strike levels have gone way, 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 way down since the 1970s and particularly in the private sector. There are actually relatively few strikes. The main thing that France has had over the last couple of decades is these kind of explosive movements around reforms, particularly, you know, around uh, policy debates, political debates over the direction of labor market and welfare, welfare state reform. And that has been a little bit different. But this idea that everyone is just constantly on strike in France um, is, is not the case. So we are sort of seeing two things then. We're seeing these these sort of almost Occupy style youth protests, and then we are seeing some industries going on strike. Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of who has gone on strike and who who are the unions that are really fighting this? Yeah, so there's a big split in the French labor movement. You can think of it there as being really two two wings, two poles. On the one hand, there is the kind of reform-oriented, co cooperative, moderate, increasingly conservative wing, which is led by a union federation called the CFDK. They have actually signed agreements with the government over the last couple of years, making concessions around some really big questions in terms of labor law and in terms of social policy, and, and played the role of kind of 
legitimating those kinds of reform efforts. And then on the other hand, there is the Sejete, which is leads the, the kind of more militant, struggle-oriented wing of the, the French labor movement. Is the, And those are the two biggest federations. And they, you know, I think there's a lot of complicated internal politics. The Sejete had a big scandal a couple years back. Uh, uh, you know, when, when the, the former leadership was, was found to be, um, found to be corrupt. The, the new leadership is more left wing, uh, led by a guy named Philippe Martinez. You know, and they, they would like to, to lead this movement against the, against the reform. Over the last couple of decades, one of the dynamics that's happened in these, these protest movements in France is the CGT tries to kind of fight. It kind of looks at what the, the CFDT is doing. And if the CFDT says, no, we're, we're going to accept this reform, we're not going to, we're not going to battle against it. The CGT sort of says, uh, well, there's nothing we can do. We're all, we're isolated. We're all by ourselves. We can't really fight. We got to, we have to give up. You know, what are you going to do? Uh, and this time they're, they're, they're not saying that. They're, they're trying to say, you know, look, there is a, there's a lot of opposition to this law. There are these protests that you're talking about, the Nuit Debout. There is overwhelming public, uh, you know, opposition to, to the, to the law and to the way the government has gone about implementing it. There's a lot of potential to build something here. You know, and, and the CGT isn't what it once was in terms of its strength on the ground, uh, but it still represents quite a bit. I mean, we're talking about a, a union with hundreds of thousands of of activists, of militants. I mean, to be a member of a union in France means you want to be what's called a militant. You want to organize. They have a lot of weight there and, you know, the potential to really lead something. In the last week and a half, Martinez has sort of, he's kind of fudged on what had been the union stance, which was, we, we accept nothing less than the withdrawal of this law. He said, okay, well, maybe there's some room to negotiate, but there are some key points that we won't budge on. The thing is that the government is uh, is not going to back down on any of those key points as far as, it, you know, it, it, in terms of how it looks right now. So there's very little scope for an agreement, which means that we're, we're headed for, probably headed for continuing escalation for the next little bit until the summer comes. And as everyone knows, once the summer comes, Everyone on France goes on vacation. Just to clarify, the the last person you mentioned that was that's the leader of the CGT. That um, yeah, that was... yeah, sorry, he's the leader of the CGT. He has a great mustache. You look him up, Philippe Martinez. Okay. Yeah, and he's like, you know, he's a he's a left wing figure. I mean, they've put forward, for an example, an alternate proposal, which I think in some ways is much more viable about job creation, which focuses on reducing the standard work week for full time workers from which is currently at 35 hours, but there's a lot of flexibility around that, down to 32 hours. And the CGT says, well, this would create four and a half million jobs. I don't know if their figures are right, but that it seems to me is a, it's a way of saying, no, there's a real, we could do something in terms of job creation. That's a better road. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, I don't know if you yourself have had a chance to get down to France to uh, experience the atmospherics there for yourself, but can you kind of describe the nature of the, perhaps not the traditional labor strike aspect, but um, the, the feel of the Nudibu protest and what kinds of um, demonstrations are taking place, who's turning out to them, what, what's unique about that social dynamic there? Yeah, so I haven't been a part of these protests from what I've read and from talking to people, and I think that the Nuit de Boo actions are, have, um, you know, have died down a little bit as, um, you know, it's kind of the, the, the center of gravity in the protest movement has moved towards strikes and the, the, the action. But there, there is, I mean, there's a, a, a lot of militancy, obviously, on, on the demonstrations in France. It is, on the one hand, a very repressive atmosphere, and you still have this state of emergency that was declared after last November's attacks. That is still intact. And it means, you know, while the government is not in a position, legally can just ban demonstrations, it's not in a position to do that. They, they, they do, they're very heavily policed and, and very heavily repressed. And, and France, there traditionally has been quite a bit of state repression compared to some other countries in Europe. There's a whole history of police violence, uh, you know, during the Algerian War. There's this famous incident in which the police killed all of these uh, demonstrators, these Algerians, in Paris and dumped their, their bodies, hundreds of bodies in the Seine River. Um, so there is that history, but there's an escalation of violence in comparison to, to recent years. And there's been a, a, a response by the, the protesters you know, there's been a, clearly a, an intensification of tactical militancy, let's say, of an attempt to organize against the, the police repression. There are some things that, that you see, again, that in the past have been inspiring features of protest movements in France. For example, you see a, a, a very high level of student organization and mobilization in some of these protest movements. Um, in 2006, there was a, uh, an attempt to, to um, flexibilize um, labor regulations uh, for, for employment for young workers. And there was a student-led movement that, that really stopped that. A law, it was a law called the CPE. Uh, and you've seen, uh, you know, there's been a lot of comparisons made this spring to that movement because of the level of student mobilization and organization. You've seen, seen a lot of blockades of high schools and universities where student protesters get together and try and blockade their schools. Those have been targeted for a very high level of police violence. Um, and I think you still see, I mean, there's still a level of, of militancy in the French labor movement that is, you know, that is for us, it's, it's, it's beyond what we're, what we're used to. Absolutely. And, um, the unions, are, they, they don't play the same role that they did in the 1970s of really cohering a kind of a, a radical labor movement. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, if you are an activist with the CGT or even some of the, the other, the other unions that are, that are uh, part of that sort of that struggle wing of the French labor movement, Sud Solidaire or uh, FO, um, you know, you are really committed to, to fighting against this law and you really are committed to, to mobilizing against it. And that is, a the fact that that's still, still true is a, you know, I think a very inspiring thing. And, and the, the Nuit de Boo stuff 
there are a lot of comparisons that were made to whether it was Indignados or to Occupy. And in a lot of ways, those comparisons are very valid. But then on the other hand, there is this difference that there was, a, I think, a very clear next step for that movement, which uh, had to do with, um, with battling against the, the, the labor law reform. And there are, there are social forces in France that still have the capacity to, to lead a fight like that, um, you know, in a very real way, which, you know, I'm not sure was true at the end of Occupy. Right, right. And certainly different from, say, the Indignados in Spain, where you kind of see uh, see a movement towards, uh, you know, uh, translating that into some sort of party politics, which uh, maybe, you know, doesn't happen in France as readily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to say, yeah, there's a lot of complications about that. There's an election coming up next year, and it's the current government is polling very, very low. And people are really frightened that it's going to be, you know, it's a two-round election. So people are really frightened that, that in the runoff, you're going to end up with the mainstream right, which could be, you know, uh, even potentially Zarkozy, although it looks like um, his one of his rivals is, is doing a little bit better, versus the far right, Marine Le Pen and the Front National, which is a very, very scary, very scary prospect. And so who, where the left is going to go in that situation, I think is still still up for grabs. Um, there's a guy from who was the candidate of the Front de Gauche, the left front in 2012, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's polling a little bit higher than he did in 2012 when he got like 11% of the vote. What the ceiling is for him in that election is, is not clear. The left front is a bit of a mess internally. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different situation than in Spain. The, the electoral question is going to, it's going to raise its, its head very, very soon, I would say. On that level, what does it mean that this is the, the quote, socialist party that is pushing this reform? I mean, in addition to the fact that, like you said, there's not a real left alternative, like what does that actually say for the future of, of this party and the left? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I, I think that uh, there's a way in which that has yet to be determined. Definitely the, the, the government, the socialist government, is trying to follow other social democratic and labor parties in Europe down the road of, of sort of neoliberal reform and, and restructuring and, and, and that whole sort of uh, uh, reorientation of the, the mainstream center left. There is a left wing of the socialist party. Uh, it, it is trying to oppose the, the current reform. It's not clear whether it has how much it has the the capacity to do that. It's it's inside the Socialist Party. It's been really outmaneuvered over the last couple of years. But there right. there is this group of people called the the Fondeurs. Sort of it means like um, the rebels, basically. And uh, you know, and they have a few dozen members of the National Assembly who are who are with them. And I think if there was something serious to the left of the Socialist Party there would be a lot more prospects for a, a break on on the terms of the left. Now, there isn't right now, uh, you know, and, and it's not clear how, how you're going to construct that. So, you know, and that, that obviously raises um, a lot of questions. There are lots of people within the Socialist Party, including people even who are closer to the sort of leadership of the party or toward the center of the party, who think the government is going way too far and, and, and want it to be more moderate or at least to make some concessions around a couple of issues. And, uh, 
the, the government has really doubled down on its strategy of we're going to be the liberalizers, you know, and that is a, it's a very controversial strategy, obviously. I mean, on that note, in terms of the level of popular support that these protesters are enjoying, how representative would you say they are? I mean, is it is a similar dynamic with Occupy where sometimes it's, you know, easy to dismiss the protesters as part of a very vocal, somewhat privileged minority of, you know, who is represented, um, you know, within this, uh, this, this emerging movement? Yeah, so here you have to make a distinction between something like Nuit Debout and, and uh, a little bit between the kind of labor-led protests against the, uh, you know, against the reform law. Uh, Nuit Debout, definitely, the, the, they, the, there was an attempt in the press and by the right to paint them as these kind of privileged, people talk about um, the disillusioned children of the middle class, kind of bourgeois, and a, a bit nihilistic almost or something. And, you know, it was like it was like here in a lot of ways in terms of Occupy, where there was an attempt to do that on the one hand. But then on the other hand, the, the these protests were tapping into a lot of concerns about things like inequality growth and economic uncertainty and sort of the direction of of society. And so there is that that kind of complicated dynamic uh, at work. Then on the other hand, when it comes to the labor, the protest against the labor law, the way that a union like the CGT is, is talked about in the media is as people who want to be militants just for the sake of being militants who refuse to compromise. You can't work with them. They're like, you know, they're, they're just kind of over the top in their opposition, no matter what the government says. It's no, 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 no. And that definitely has an impact on public opinion. But on the other hand, it would be a lot easier to kind of back up those kinds of denunciations if the government wasn't seen as being completely off the wall, as going just way over the top. I mean, the government's strategy is to kind of split the opposition and win over sections of it and try and win over a section of the public that is opposed. But because they won't compromise on anything, they are seen as being the cause of uh, all sorts of disorder and disruption, and it's it's limited their ability to isolate and marginalize a union like like the CGT, and it means that even if people have questions, lots of questions about sort of the union opposition, they sympathize with the protests against the labor law reform, and you're really you really are seeing that right now, where um, you know where they're the majority of the public is. Is it thinks that the protests are justified and thinks that it's the government's fault that they are happening. And that, that is a, a real reflection of, of political weakness, uh, you know, uh, on the part of the government. And it means that this kind of effort to split the opposition or, or marginalize the more sort of militant wings of the labor movement, that, that really hasn't been successful. Speaking of splitting the opposition, um, often, uh, as you hinted at earlier, this this uh, sort of crisis is seen as a division between younger and older sort of incumbent workers who have job security versus uh, you know younger workers who are suffering from massive unemployment. What's sort of the uh, the left response to that in terms of just what this means generally for building a unified movement that is in opposition to this reform? I mean that that is a that is a really essential question, and you're absolutely right. That is definitely the way that that things are framed uh, all the time, uh, not just in France, but really all over Europe. Um, it 
I would say that the less responses that, that we've seen the deregulation of employment, the more it's hurt, particularly, you know, younger workers and those kind of on the margins of the labor market. At the end of the 1990s, there were these, these two measures, the ugly laws, that reduced standard working time from 39 to 35 hours for full-time employees without loss of pay. And there was a lot of complications about how they were implemented. They led to a lot of business opposition, these measures. Uh, which led the, the government at the time, it was a socialist government, to back down a little, little bit. And so there, it was really mixed, the effect of the law. But one thing it definitely did was it created hundreds of thousands of jobs, and they were full-time jobs. Actually, the, 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 the proportion of part-time work years after this measure was created went down in France, as did the proportion of, of low-wage employment. You saw a huge spike in job creation. And, and I think that you could say that if we really, what we want to create are good jobs for people, this would be the way to do it. This idea that by making it easier to lay off workers or to, to reduce employment standards in a company or to, to, to get current employees to work longer, that you are going to improve the situation for those on the edges of the labor market. I mean, that is just not a, it's not, it's not a, a viable strategy. And this idea that it's, it's, it's the kind of current employees or the union militants that are the impediment to job creation for, for, for those who are, are suffering from very high rates of unemployment or youth unemployment, long-term unemployment, etc. I don't think that holds water at a time when in Europe in general and in France particularly, there's this, this, this push to, to really to undermine, undermine employment standards and this strategy of, of liberalization has not born fruit in terms of any job creation. I mean, this has not been a successful model, uh, you know, or, or, or reform path at all. Uh, you know, and, and so I think that within the public in general, there's a lot of skepticism of these arguments right now. Yeah, I mean, you studied the 35-hour work week, which is kind of this thing that we hear a lot about in this country, like, oh, that was lazy French. But like, yeah, can you give us a little, a little bit more history about the 35-hour week and, and the attachment to it? Yeah, so this was introduced at the end of the 1990s, first and foremost as a job creation measure, you know, at a time of, like now, very high unemployment, chronically high unemployment. The idea being that if you reduce hours for current employees and it create tax incentives for companies to replace those lost working hours by hiring new people, you'll kind of reduce uh, reduce the unemployment figures. And, and there was a lot of business opposition, not so much to the idea of working time reduction per se, but to the fact that this was legislated, that it was made mandatory, that it was a mandatory cut in employee uh, working hours. The government made a lot of concessions to that business opposition in, in, in a whole bunch of ways. So, for example, one of the things that the laws did was they changed the ways that working hours were calculated so that now they would be calculated on annual rather than weekly basis. In other words, as long as the total number of, of yearly working hours per employee pass a certain average, a certain average of, you know, that uh, per week. Within that, you how you distributed those hours you know, could vary quite a bit. So you get workers to work more hours one week and, and fewer hours the next, as long as it stayed before below that sort of annual uh, annual limit. And so the the impact of the law was very uh, uneven in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, as a, you know, for, it was sort of, it was pretty quickly abandoned as an employment strategy, but to the extent it was followed through on, 
I think there's a lot of evidence that it was it was pretty successful. And for a lot of people in France, that kind of that promise of the 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 35 hour uh, work week really became it became seen as um, you know it was called a um, by a, a, a conservative actually a conservative president um, of former president Jacques Chirac called it a, a, an acquired social right. It's like this idea that this is the promise of how society should operate. We shouldn't have to work so many hours uh, per week or, or, or per year. And there's no reason that, that society should function that way. And really, since it was implemented, you know, and it's gotten chipped away at a lot, it's a lot weaker than it used to be. There's a lot more flexibility to go over and above 35 hours to get people to work overtime hours. But there's still a real fight around it, clearly, as, as we're seeing right now. And it's something that people are very much attached to. Now, like I said, the CGT has proposed a further reduction of working time down to 32 hours. Right. Um, you know, a legal reduction. That's something, obviously, that business is not interested in having happen. And the way that they've been framing their opposition to 35 hours, the, the, the business sort of lobby groups, um, particularly the main one in France is, the, the biggest is known as MEDEF, the sort of big, it's the, the organization of, of, of big business, uh, basically, is, is we don't think everyone needs to work, you know, 40 or 50 hours a week, but we think there needs to be more flexibility and that for some people at times you should be able to work 32 hours and then maybe, then, you know, and then if you have to work 48 hours the next week, that's fine, you know, and that's the kind of flexibility um, that we need. And as we, we know from experience, both in France and in Europe in general, um, whenever people talk about flexibility in terms of labor law, it really is a code word for, for undermining employment standards. And, um, you know, and so that's something that, that the unions in particular really resist. And, um, you know, and there's a lot of support for keeping the 35-hour legal standard uh, in, the, in the French public. In terms of just the protest movement going forward, can you talk about, uh, you mentioned this earlier, but the effect of this whole national security panic and, and the uh, sort of growth of the security state and its crackdown on minorities and, and Muslims in particular, how, how is that affecting the nature of protest movements in France? There's a couple of things that would need to be unpacked here. I mean, there's a lot of bigotry in France directed in particular against Muslims. Um, but, you know, against against immigrants and, you know, in the national front, I mean, Marine Le Pen has been leading in the polls she, for the 2017 presidential election. It's not clear she's going to she's going to stay there. But she, you know, she very openly uh, will, will compare Muslims praying in the streets to the Nazi occupation and has led campaigns around the, the need to have pork in all the public school lunches because if you don't it's creeping islamization of french society it's the muslim takeover halal food is you know it's, it's this is a reflection of the growth of islamic fundamentalism in france and you know so this is someone who's leading in the polls and there's i would say that the the left is very split on a lot of these issues and this question of kind of france's quote-unquote secular identity people talk about laicite uh, is something that the right is really able has been able to use as a bludgeon and to really split the left for for quite a while and the left doesn't know how to respond and the government um, you know as it's as it's gotten more and more right wing has really 
played into uh, the right's hands. Um, you know, you had the Prime Minister Manuel Valls say not too long ago that the government wants to fight the 2017 election on the on around the issues of of national identity and, and what's called French republicanism, um, which is always uh, that's really always been uh, a losing strategy, definitely uh, for the left. But this is what happens when when the other basis on which you're going to fight fight that election is over the economic strategy and over uh, your 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 kind of program for reforming labor law, which is also a loser, you know, so so it, it's not clear exactly how the, the government is going to going to handle this. Um, definitely after the attacks of last, well, first last January and then last November, the government has tried to kind of double down on its uh, commitment to a sort of law and order um, program. They suffered a big defeat, you know, around the, their effort to, to get the Constitution changed. There was a proposal that the government was making to change the Constitution so that they could strip French citizens uh, who were accused of terrorism-related activities uh, of the... They could strip dual citizens of their French citizenship. So they lost that, and, and that was a, that was another big blow. Um, definitely after November, there was a huge police crackdown that they instituted all over France. I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and thousands of, of raids by uh, the anti special anti-terrorism squads, um, you know, don't have to have a warrant, who don't have to, uh, you know, they don't have to have probable cause. All the kind of rules due process go out the window. Um, and, and I think that there was a, a lot of concern that that was going to create an atmosphere that was too repressive for protests to break out, uh, you know, at all. They, they basically shut down the big protests that were planned uh, for the climate summit um, at the end of last year. There were some protests, but they were much smaller than, the, than had been planned. Then in February, the government announces this law and that, you know, things really explode and uh, there's clearly a lot of violence on the street, but it hasn't, it hasn't stopped the protests. Uh, and the government's efforts to kind of accuse the protesters of being violent and out of control, that hasn't succeeded in stopping this kind of intensification of, of, of protests. And so I think, you know, I, it, it's, it's, it's surprising. It's impressive given the atmosphere that existed at the end of last year. And it was bad. I mean, it was bad after the attacks in November. There was a lot of fear, and and the government managed to, to pass the uh, the renewal of the state of emergency relatively relatively easy, easily at the time. And so I think there was a, a sense that they were going to kind of get away with this. And the fact that that, um, that hasn't stopped the protest movement is, is, is something that's worth celebrating. Yeah, for sure. So finished up, how does all of this fit in all of these larger issues and battles going on within the EU right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the, the question of, of labor law reform is a, is a, a central one. Part of what the, the institutions that, that run the EU are trying to do is use the need for better economic integration across borders as an excuse to pressure governments to push through major reforms of, of labor market regulation and liberalization of employment relations all over the EU. You know, and that's definitely, that's a project that we've seen in, in Greece, that we saw in, in you know, in Spain and in, in Italy, we've seen all over. On the other hand, you know, and in France in, in particular, I would say, 
European unification has, for more than a quarter century, has, has functioned as an excuse for elites trying to push through unpopular reforms. You know, it's, it's, it, it becomes a justification for that. It isn't the, the cause of those reform efforts. I mean, the reality is that the French elites don't need outside pressure in order to try and, and deregulate the labor market. It's what they, what they want to do, what they've been trying to do for, for a very, very long time. And so this is an example, I think, more than anything of how uh, bodies like the EU can function not just as, a, um, as the cause of these kinds of neoliberal reform efforts, but more as a resource or a tool for governments that, uh, to do what, they, what they, they already want to do. I would say that if, if in France, this, this movement can continue to gain steam, you know, and can kind of shift the balance of forces and, and, and maybe even stop or at least partially block this law, that that could, that could have reverberations all over the continent. And that's something that really could give people, you know, a lot of confidence all over the continent and, and be a, a source of inspiration. One of the things that's, that you've seen over the last couple of years is that there's a real problem where people want to fight. You know, in countries like Greece, it really it sort of embodies this. There's a desire to stop liberalization, but there's not a sense that you can do anything, you know, and that you can, you could fight and you can win. And, and maybe this will, will help to start to, to shift that dynamic. That was Jonah Birch of Jacobin Magazine. We will put a link to his writing on the Descent website. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. This spring has seen a series of labor strikes by prisoners in multiple states, including Alabama and Texas. Prisoners have called for a national prison general strike on September 9th, which will be the 45th anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion. We occasionally hear about prisoners' protests, but it's most often hunger strikes that make news. But in a piece for Yes! magazine titled Forget Hunger Strikes, What Prisons Fear Most is Labor Strikes, Raven Rakia lays out the case for the power of prisoners refusing to labor. While hunger strikes pull at the moral heartstrings of the public, she writes, work stoppages threaten the economic infrastructure of the prison system itself. The prison strikes in Alabama were organized by a group called the Free Alabama Movement, created by prisoners to focus on the human rights of the incarcerated. Alabama, which has one of the country's most overcrowded prison systems, is about 80% overcapacity. In the Deep South, the connections between prisons and slavery are never that far from the minds of people incarcerated, as Free Alabama Movement co-founder Melvin Ray told Rikia. He said, quote, They use prisons as a tool of control. They target African-American communities. They target politically conscious people, politically conscious organizations. And they use these prisons as a form of social control in addition to a plantation that's generating revenue. The organizers decided to target the economic base of the prisons rather than simply the sympathies of those in power. The hunger strikes, they decided, were still a form of begging the authorities to have mercy on them. But, Ray said, that revelation brought us to the fact that you can't appeal to the moral part of a system that doesn't have morals. 
As Rakia writes, quote, corrections departments across the country have laws stating they can take part or most of prisoners' wages to pay for the upkeep of the prison or room and board. Incarcerating the highest rate of prisoners in the world comes at a cost, so states have increasingly used the prisoners' own labor to lower prison costs. Prolonged work stoppages threaten to increase these costs and create a more expensive prison system. Some states, like Alabama with its high budget deficit, simply can't afford that. As for the question of whether the strikes work, Rakia points out that one of the strikers' demands was the removal of the warden at Holman Correctional Facility, and two weeks after the end of the May strike, he retired. My pick for this episode is He Had a Great Eye for a Story by Philip Reeves on NPR.org, which also uh, appeared on the radio station as a audio segment. Now, reporting on Afghanistan has really faded from the headlines of Western media lately, and it's kind of understandable. Our military is in withdrawal mode. Technically, uh, America has less, quote, skin in the game now uh, that we are moving our troops out and there are fewer uh, Americans coming home in body bags. But the recent death of David Gilkey, an NPR photojournalist, brought the story back home again. He was caught in the crossfire in the Hellman region, uh, along with his assistant, Zabinullah Tamana. And uh, while Gilkey was fondly remembered by many of his U.S. media colleagues, uh, one of the stories coming out of that tragedy that I picked up on was about Zabinullah Tamana. Um, Zabinullah was what they call a fixer. He was a translator, he was a local guide, and he was really uh, the one who brokered access to a lot of the key sources, oftentimes had to negotiate very tricky political relationships and put himself at great political and physical risk by broaching those conversations uh, before an American journalist could even start to do the interview. Um, It's really these fixers that make many of the stories that we read in the news possible, and they take the kinds of risks that no U.S. news outlet would ever take for its own reporters. So um, many times they make the ultimate sacrifice, so to speak, uh, for the stories that they never really get credit for. Their bylines almost never appear. Um, Now I know, having done some reporting abroad, that it's often the local connections that the fixers are able to broker that can make or break a story, and yet it's almost always the American porter read some white guy who ends up getting the byline for, quote, breaking the news or reporting, quote, from the trenches. Uh, now, Zabi Nula, or Zabi, was a father of three. He was highly educated, multilingual, and he loved his work. And he never really sought the kind of fame, I guess, that many American journalists seek. And uh, he threw himself into his work with a keen intuition that wowed even his veteran Western colleagues. And this remembrance by Reeves really shows his admiration. Uh, Reeves writes, quote, He was a tall man with a warm smile who somehow managed to couple a casual manner with a quiet sense of authority. It soon became clear that he had a great eye for a story and that people from every level of society simply liked and trusted him, an essential quality in the journalism business. Zabi seemed at ease with everyone. He persuaded senior politicians, young male migrants heading to Europe, female victims of war, and many, many more to speak to NPR's microphone, and by doing so, to shine a light on their nation's unending conflict. In short, Zabi seemed to have embodied a kind of rapport, a kind of admirable mutual trust, 
and um, a peaceful relationship with locals that uh, nation states uh, purport to strive for, but constantly and I would say often deliberately elude. Zabi's short career, from what I can tell from the story, uh, presents us, the journalists, the readers, the American officials who are often the ones waging war, uh, and even perhaps the soldiers who perished alongside him in that battlefield. It poses all of us with the unanswerable question of why war is so easy and peace so hard when we're all part of the same human story and often all it takes is one person's life to really uh, bring all those strands together in an extraordinary way. And yet he never made himself the story. Um, So at a time in American media when mainstream journalists often elevate themselves to the level of super celebrity and reality TV, and at the same time, there's like a huge workforce of ordinary reporters who suffer from economic insecurity and job loss and layoffs and media consolidation. Um, you know, their voices and their bylines are continually squeezed out um, of the industry. And uh, it's very hard to find room in the media industry today for good old fashioned shoe leather reporting. And that story becomes doubly tragic abroad when you have uh, foreign bureaus shutting down all over the place and uh, foreign correspondents often you know, not having the support that they need. And of course, that is multiplied many fold by the time you get down to the level of the fixer like Zabi. Now, it would be naive of me as a reader and you know, as a journalist stateside to suggest that people like Zabi can show us the way to world peace or sounder foreign policy or even a better way of doing journalism. But in his strange way, the fact that he was able to live at peace with all these different conflicting elements of his life in a dynamic of war, that he was able to internalize all these dynamics and turn them into a a very carefully and sensitively sculpted narrative. And as many of Gilkey and Zabi's admirers like to say, for them it wasn't about the so-called bang-bang. It was about the everyday. It was about the real-life hardship and the lived experience of the communities and the families Um, that they sometimes, when they were lucky, managed to report on. But I like to think that people like Zabi and Gilkey, through their collaboration, helped present a different narrative to the outside world and help ensure that Afghanistan, you know, for all the misery that it's been through, has not been forgotten, or at least won't fade as quickly from the headlines as it otherwise would have as Washington moves on to other wars and other occupations. And I'm glad to have read Reza's Remembrance of Zabi, one that for once put Zabi at the center of the story Um, because we often forget that the person who never gets the byline is often the real author and that the real author can often be a real character in the narrative and uh, a character who is uh, both subject to the perils of fate in a battlefield uh, but also embodies great agency and hope and of course at the end of the day Zabi could not escape Afghanistan But he also chose bravely to stay and to tell the story because at the end of the day, the stories are all that we have left. And every once in a while, we're lucky enough to remember the names as well. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.